Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the first chapter. I'm going to be reading the first six verses from the New American Standard Bible. Let's all give careful attention to the public reading of God's Word as it's found in the Gospel of John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 6. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would sweeten this part of your word in our hearts and in our lives, that we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. Praying in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, we continue this morning our study of the introduction to the Gospel of John. A Gospel was written so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in believing might have life in His name. So at the beginning of the Gospel, the first 18 chapters, John takes time to introduce us to the Christ. He tells us that the Christ was in the beginning. He was not only with God, but he was very God of very God. He tells us that uh, he was the agent of creation and that through the Christ, all things that have come into being have come into being. And nothing has been made that has not been made. Implication, the Christ has not been made, which is why John will twice in this text refer to him as the only begotten and once as the only begotten God. And then John tells us that this word, and of course word brings revelation, this word was the light. And this light was the life of all of humanity. And so 1 through 5 are kind of like the introduction to the introduction, and the rest, 6 through 18, are the introduction proper. But it's interesting that John kind of takes a little three-verse hiatus from introducing the Christ to us. In our text this morning, which is verses 6, 7, and 8, John uh, introduces us to someone else. And it's important that we understand who this person is so that we can understand who the Christ is. This person's a very important person in the Gospel of John. plays a role in all the Gospels, but he plays a special role in the Gospel of John. And so as John continues to introduce you to the Christ... He introduces you this morning to a fellow that we could call the witness. Let's just walk our way through this text, asking two questions. 
First of all, who was the witness? Notice that uh, John begins by saying, There came a man sent from God. There came. Um, This is not, there was a man. Remember in previous sermons, John's been very careful uh, in the use of his Greek verbs to distinguish. You'll remember that in uh, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That verb that speaks, at least in a hinted way, of the eternality of the Word of God. It's something that was, that continues, that has duration. But then in verse 3, he switches and he goes to another verb. It's a verb that can be translated made, came about. And that's what the creation is. Not eternal, but it had a beginning. It came about. And then he goes back in verse 4 and he starts to talk about uh, the life was. When he's talking about the word again, he has this was. Well, when he starts this verse in chapter 6, he uses the word came. And it's the same word, even though it's translated differently in English, it's the same word that he was using in verse 3 for creation. So there came. All of a sudden we know that we're talking about something categorically different than the word who was. There came a man. That's all he was. He was a man. He was not with God in the beginning. He was not very God of very God, begotten, not created. There came, like the rest of creation, there came at a point in time a man. Just an ordinary man, just like you, just like me. Albeit, he was a very special man. Because John goes on to say, there came a man sent from God. Uh, The word sent is a word that is related to the word from which we get our word apostle. Now this fellow is not one of the twelve apostles, but it's the same idea. This idea of being sent is not just like sent in any general way, it's sent in a particular way. This being sent is somebody who's sent with a message. We could translate this, there came a man uh, sent from God with a message, with a particular message. And uh, then John goes on to say whose name was John. Now, there are a number of Johns that this could be. And, of course, since we're reading the Gospel of John, we might think that it's the Apostle John. Uh, The Apostle John is very self-deprecating. He never refers to himself. He'll, He'll speak of the beloved disciple, but he won't say... I'm the beloved disciple. That's uh, kind of like Moses saying, I'm the most humble man on earth. Uh, that's, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. There are a few things that probably Moses didn't write. And the fact that he's the most humble man on earth is probably not one of the things that Moses actually uh, wrote. He probably also didn't write his obituary. It, it's possible, uh, but it's not likely that he wrote his obituary. Uh, This is not the Apostle John. This is the fellow that the other gospel writers call John the Baptist. But it's interesting that in the Gospel of John, 
John is never called John the Baptist. There are a couple of places where his baptizing is referred to. Uh, But in the other Gospels, his baptizing is a big deal. He's called John the Baptist. He's a preacher of repentance. That's That's not what John the Apostle tells us about him. John the Apostle tells us something else about him. If we were going to nickname this John based on what we know of him from the Gospel of John, we wouldn't call him John the Baptist. We would call him John the Witness. Um, This word witness is only used two other times in all three of the other Gospels. That's not, that's not even once per gospel. The Apostle John uses both the noun and the verb some 53 times. So, the gospels, by the way, we do have four, yes? Not just one, and it must be for a reason. Let's just say that we, uh, we're, we're celebrating somebody's... Um, 50th wedding anniversary, and we have a number of different people who are going to come up and say things about those people. Now, they're going to say true things about them, yes, but they're not going to say the same thing. If they were going to say the same thing, why have four different people talk? Let's just have one person say it, right? But each of them know these folks in a little different way, and they're going to give us a little different take on who that person is, and the same thing is true with the Gospels. They're not all identical. They don't give us the same picture. They're all true pictures, but they're not all the same. And whereas the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, whereas they speak of John as the baptizer, the preacher of repentance, wearing furry clothes and eating strange food, in the Gospel of John, he's the witness. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, John goes on to say, he was not the light. We've already talked about the light in the previous verse. Uh, This one uh, was the light that brings life into the world. And then John goes on to say, John the witness is not the light. Now, why would he say John is not the light? There's only one reason. Because somebody must have thought he was the light. The only reason to negate the fact that John was the light was there must have been people around who were disciples of John, and they thought that John was the be-all and the end-all. Turn to Acts chapter 19, just the first couple of verses. John, did I say John? Acts. They're different books, by the way. Uh, Acts, Acts chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? 
And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, in Jesus. So you see, this gives evidence to the fact that in Paul's day, up in Ephesus, there were disciples of John. And uh, these were no doubt devout people. They missed the point, however, of who John was. They thought that John was the end of the matter. They thought that John was all about John. And so when they were baptized, they were baptized with the baptism of John, but they just missed the big point. They got caught up in the details and missed the big point of who John was. John was not the end of the matter. In the Apostle John's language, John was not the light. So, who was the witness? He was a mere man. He was a created man. He came like the rest of the creation. But he came from God. He was sent by God with a special message to deliver. Uh, He was not the light. Second question, why was the witness sent? Two things here. John says, he came as a witness to testify. If you look at um, back at our text in John chapter 1, notice in verse 7 it says, he came as a witness to testify. Now we've switched words in English. Uh, Greek has a noun and a verb. We could maybe better, more woodenly translate this as, he came as a witness to bear witness. It's the same word. And if you go down to verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness. He came to testify about the light. So John says twice, he says twice, he came as a witness to testify. Wouldn't once have done it. My wife often tells me I repeat too much. And uh, remember, uh, Hebrew mothers taught their kids to repeat things so that people would get the message. And whenever you see repetition in the Bible, it's there for a reason. And so John, John not only says he was not the light, but he tells us not once but twice, he came as a witness to testify, to bear witness to something else. And there are a couple of key ideas in this, in this um, ancient world's understanding of a witness. And they still makes sense in our modern idea of somebody as a witness, for example, to a crime. One of those ideas is that there's some sort of personal relationship, not that you're best pals, but there's a relationship to the events that are mentioned. One in the ancient world normally testified about something that one had some personal experience with. And so John, as a witness, has had some sort of personal experience with the Messiah, with the Christ. And there's also this idea of, of, an, of importance. It's often fun when you're studying the Bible, not only to focus on what was said, 
But what could have been said that wasn't said? In other words, why does an author pick one word when others might have served the same purpose? It's kind of gross, but one of my best examples of this is our friend Jonah. Remember when Jonah was in the big fish? Anybody remember the verb that is used for how God got Jonah back onto dry land? You don't have to say it because we're in church, right? And we don't talk about those things. It's kind of like dinner with three boys. Every dinner conversation ends up in the bathroom one way or another. Vomit. Now, God, the, the, the text could have said, God, put him back on dry land, sent him back to dry land, delivered him back to dry land. But out of all those words, one word was chosen, and it's vomit. And, of course, we've talked about Jonah way, way back in the past. Maybe, when I, maybe I preached on Jonah when there was a fish behind me. I don't know. <laughs> um, that word is giving us insight into God's evaluation of Jonah's prayer. Vomit is disgusting, and God was disgusted with Jonah's prayer. Sure, on the surface, it was a perfectly orthodox prayer, but that's where we look, right? But where does God look? God looks on the heart, and God knew that Jonah's heart was still far, far away. So it's interesting to say, why this word as opposed to some other words? And um, the Apostle John here could have said that, um, that he, sent, uh, he was sent to talk about, he was sent to speak about, he was sent to announce, but he uses this word testify, which in that ancient culture, culture has weight. This is what you do, not just chit-chatting, This isn't like light conversation. This is what you do when you're talking about very important matters. And uh, as I mentioned, this the 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 verb and the noun for this witnessing verb thirty nine times. John one thirty four says, "I myself have seen," and John says, "I have testified that this is the Son of God." Jesus says of John, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Uh, the nouns used some 14 times. Uh, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Are you the light? Are you the Christ? Who are you? So there's this importance of speaking of not just everyday things, but heavier things, more weighty things, and that's witness, that's testimony. Uh, We shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that another uh, Bible writer, Luke, when he writes Acts, uh, records for us Jesus' words that says, you shall receive power When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. You see, in the weighty issues of life. Now, the Bible's not saying that we should never have a light conversation, but it is saying that there are times when that conversation has to be weighty. It has to be witness. It has to be witness to the truth. And John is the premier example of that. So why was the witness sent? Well, 
kind of tautologous. He was sent to witness. He was sent to testify. But why was he sent to testify? John goes on to say, so that all might believe. Hmm. John must not have been a Calvinist. That's a joke. But he does say all. And we have to hear that word all. I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church of America. Uh, This congregation is a congregation of the PCA. But I was originally ordained in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in 1948, I was not there. um, But in 1948, the General Assembly of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, studied an issue that we could just call the free offer of the gospel. And uh, Arthur Kushke and uh, John Murray and Ned Stonehouse uh, wrote a report for the General Assembly, a report that was accepted, and that report says there is an authentic free offer of the gospel that goes to absolutely everybody. In other words, it is God's will that everybody be saved. On the other hand, there is the doctrine of election, which says it is God's will that only some be saved. And you say, whoa, then there must be a contradiction in God, right? If it's God's will that all be saved, and if it's God's will that only some be saved, how can that be? It can only be in this one way. We're not using the word will in the same way. We're using the word will in two different ways. And this is not the time or place to go into all of that. But uh, if you want to, just Google the free offer of the gospel, and you can find the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian uh, report. But um, Kushke and Murray and Stonehouse uh, cited texts like Ezekiel 18.23, Do I, God, have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, rather that they should turn from his way and live? 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance and faith. So, have, have you ever heard the idea, if you're dealing with discipling a new believer, give them the gospel of John because it's simple? Let me tell you, you read the Gospel of John and you encounter some of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith. It is simple on one level, but it's also so very profound. Okay, analogies fail, so forgive this one. But it's kind of like Lewis's Narnia of Chronicles, Chronicles of Narnia, yes? They are so simple that kids can read them and get the storyline. But you read them and reread them, and they are so deep and so rich and so profound. Well, the Gospel of John, even more so. Let us hold firmly to our understanding of the doctrine of election. Let us hold that with conviction. 
And let us be generous in our heart of hearts with regard to God's attitude and our attitude in wanting the churches to be full and wanting that offer of the gospel to go to everyone. I had an an experience back when I was in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I was a young presbyter, and we were were interviewing young men for candidacy, and I asked a man right before lunch. I said to him, we're going to lunch. Can you go out on the street and walk up to a total stranger and say, God loves you and wants you to be saved? And he said, no, I can't do that. I said, too bad. I said, what about the fellow that came to Jesus and then he turned away because he was rich and Jesus was saddened by that because Jesus loved him? Well, he said to me, he must have gotten saved sometime later because the text says Jesus loved him. We can't take our doctrine and force every text into some kind of Procrustean bed We've got to let the Bible itself speak freely. And when we can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together, we say, okay, we can't put them all together. God knows. We're finite. We're sinners. We shouldn't be surprised if there are things that we cannot uh, understand. We sang that in our first hymn. So let's hold to our doctrine of election. The Bible teaches it. God ordained from the beginning those who would be saved. And let's hold to this heart of God that freely reaches out to absolutely everyone, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. That's why John came. He came so that all might believe. And when he says believe, he doesn't mean just have faith in general. But remember, he, he, he means believe the message. It's not enough to say, I'm a person of faith. That's very popular in our day and age, isn't it? I'm a person of faith. She's a person of faith. He's a person of faith. John didn't come just so that people could be persons of faith. He came so that they could believe a particular message about a particular person. And uh, when he says, so that might, he's just a Greek way of expressing very clear purpose and intention. He came, why? To testify. Why? So that all might believe. Now, the reality is, in John's day, all didn't believe, did they? He came so that all might believe, but in reality, all didn't believe. And in our day and age, all don't believe. You can share the gospel, and why do you share the gospel with something, somebody? What's your purpose? What's your intention? Your intention is so that they might believe. That's what you want. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it does not. The reality, not all did. The reality, not all do. But you have. Let me wrap this up by quoting one more verse out of John. And it's about John the witness. The next day, he, John the witness, saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the elect. Oops, I'm sorry. It, it says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John was not the end. And his disciples that thought he was the end were wrong. They missed the point of John. John did not point to himself. John's job was to point to another, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I told you John is deep. And of course, this is a series of sermons in what this means. I'm not going to do that right now. I just want to say that at least one thing that John means when he says that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world is that the sacrifice of Christ was absolutely sufficient for everyone who has ever lived, is living, or ever will live. Let me give you an illustration. Let's just presume that uh, there are 2.5 billion elect right now in the world. I'm just making up a number. Now let's presume that that's the total number throughout all ages. If there were 2.5 plus 1, Jesus would not have had to suffer more. If there were 2.5 minus 1, Jesus would not have had to suffer less. Jesus' suffering is absolutely sufficient for everyone who ever has, does, or will live. The other question with regard to election is the word efficient. Is it efficient for everyone? That's a topic for another day. But when the Bible says that the Lamb comes to take away the sin of the world, it's telling us that Jesus wouldn't have had to suffer anymore if there were one more elect person. Who mentioned coming in if you missed the first class and adding somebody to the class? Clayton, you mentioned that? Okay, if somehow somebody was late to the election board and one got in like afterward... God would not, the Father would not have said to the Son, sorry, but there's a little more suffering that you have to do. What a Savior. A Savior who was willing to suffer in such a way that His suffering is sufficient, not only for your sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Sufficient for all means sufficient for you. Do not miss the promise here. Do not think that somehow your sins are so great that you couldn't possibly be forgiven. Let's put ourselves in perspective here. Out of all the billions of people who ever have, do, or will live on this earth, your sins are a small drop in the ocean. And if God's plan of salvation through the suffering of His Son is sufficient for the whole world, Why would you ever think that it is not sufficient for you? Please don't think so highly of yourself. (laughs) Think more highly of the atoning sacrifice of the Son 
sufficient for all, sufficient for you. And that brings us to the Lord's table. Educators know that we're different. When I teach Hebrew, in the first semester, I give students a book to read called How Biblical Languages Work. And uh, it's really a book on linguistics, but linguistics can be scary. So the authors made it kind of popular, How Biblical Languages Work. And I have them read the last chapter first, because the last chapter, I think, should have been the first chapter. It's on learning styles. Because educators are aware that different people learn in different ways. Some people are auditory learners, and some people are visual learners, and some people are kinesthetic learners. And uh, so I want students to think about how they learn and what techniques they can develop so they can play to their strengths. Well, educators, there's nothing new under the sun. God's known all about this all the time. That's why he not only gives us the word that we can hear, but he gives us the sacraments. The sacraments that we can feel, that we can taste, that we can smell. Uh, It's not a better gospel, but it does help us to get the gospel better because it's using more of our senses. And the sacraments are like John the Witness. The sacraments don't point to themselves. They are not an end in and of themselves. The bread and the wine point you to another. They point you to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if he took away the sin of the world, so sufficient was his sacrifice. His sacrifice is sufficient to take away your sin as well. Let's pray.